are listening to True Crime Twins, a true crime podcast hosted by Chloe and Melina Cantor. True Crime Twins is distributed by Glassbox Media and is part of the Crawlspace Media family. Welcome back to True Crime Twins, where we use our occupational and educational backgrounds in criminology and medicine to tell you crime stories. This is the third part of our mini-series covering the unsolved disappearance of Patricia Lee Otto, a 24-year-old mother of two young daughters who disappeared in 1976 from her home in Lewiston, Idaho. Her husband, Ralph, never reported her missing. Suzanne Timms was three years old when her mother disappeared, and now as an adult is her mother's advocate. She is extremely focused on finding justice and resolution for her mother. In her investigation, Suzanne has come to believe that a Jane Doe found in Finley Creek, Oregon, is her mother, and that the state of Oregon botched the investigation. For more context and to hear from Suzanne herself, please tune in to parts one and two of this series. Today for part three, Melina and I sit and chat with Mel Jetterberg, who is a founder of the Finley Creek Jane Doe Task Force. She has done meticulous research and has requested every record possible. She's responsible for having the sketch done. There was really no information and no advocacy being done on the Finley Creek Jane Doe until Mel and her colleagues came into the picture. In this interview, Mel tells us everything that we need to know about this Finley Creek Jane Doe and her opinions about the connections to Patricia Lee Otto. Welcome to the show, Mel. Thank you so much for joining us. I've heard a lot of things from Suzanne Timms. We spoke with her about her missing mother, Patricia Otto. As you know, she has been doing a lot of research into the potential connection between her missing mother and the Jane Doe that was found in Finley Creek. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you became involved I live in the area where these remains were found. The area is a camping area that's about 25 miles from where I live and where I grew up. And the remains were actually found when I was about four. And so when I, you know, being a true crime fan, I actually have a background in criminal justice and criminology as well. And I'm a bit of a research nerd. My master's was in information science. I was going to become a librarian and then just didn't. I went into social and human services instead. But I was like, well, I keep hearing about this Doe network. I wonder if we have any unidentified remains around here. Because I'd never heard of any and I thought I was pretty dialed in, you know, to my to my hometown. And when I went on the Doe network and plugged in Union County, Oregon, there was a set of remains that had been found that had never been identified. So I went, hmm, this is interesting. And it just started, I first, of course, I texted my parents and said, did you know anything about this? Do you remember this? And they were in their 20s at the time with two young children. So they're like, yeah, maybe we heard a little, don't really remember. And so I started doing some research online and found where there had been 
a web sleuth posting made about it as well as a crime watchers post and very small amounts of information some information about the area at that point she didn't even have a moniker she was just up whatever number and they described her in these web sleuth posts so i had read michelle mcnamara's book when it came out and she was talking about her process as far as working on a cold case and just some of the tactics that she used and the information that she dug up but that wasn't you know she wasn't an investigator this was just something she was passionate about and wanted to do so i got very motivated by that and thought you know i think that's something that i could do having grown up around here i felt like i had connections or if i didn't have them could make them and see what I could do to push this case forward. So I looked around on Facebook to see what other groups were doing and things like that, and just thought, I think I could do this. So about three years ago in 2019, the anniversary date, which was in late August, was coming up. And I said, well, this is as good a time as any. Let's, let's hit it on the anniversary date. So I launched a Facebook page dedicated to Finley Creek Jane Doe. And it was at that point that I named her. That's why I named her that um, was so that it would be something catchy. And we would have something to identify with her that was memorable. I really do believe that having a moniker like that helps the case resonate with people. And I think it says so much about you that you took this on because these poor does are essentially discarded and forgotten by society and erased. And to have you take it upon yourself to humanize her is really wonderful. For more information, she was discovered on August 27, 1978 in Oregon. She was discovered in the morning by two hunters at the Finley Creek Cow Camp in a shallow grave. There was also fetal remains located in that grave. How far along was Finley Creek Jane Doe? Well, the initial information that we got, because we eventually did get the police records, which was not very much at all, they estimated that she was between six and eight months pregnant. However, in the last few years, we've been able to talk to Dale Mammon, who was the district attorney for our county at the time these remains were discovered. And he said, you know, that was just really a very, very rough estimate. She could have been anywhere from just found out to just having been, you know, getting ready to deliver. It was just such a rough estimate. And when we got a hold of the medical examiner's report about it, there was, there was no more information in there about that. There was no measurement of fetal bones, nothing like that. It was just this little tiny mass of bones that was in the abdominal area. And so it was literally a guess. One of the other unfortunate things is they didn't take any pictures of it. They didn't like spread the dirt out. They just talked about this clump of dirt with bones in it that they sent off to be tested, never took pictures or anything like that. The records, the investigating, the documentation that was done in the time was very minimal and not very well done. 
I will give a little bit of grace because we don't have a lot of murders here. And at the time, it was the state police who had jurisdiction. And because it was in the woods, it was a forest ranger who was doing the investigating at the time. They did call the state lab technicians in, but it was just one of those things where I think it was lack of experience. I I think it was the time period and you don't know what you don't know at the time. There were a number of pictures that were taken at the scene. So you can kind of sort of see this partially dug out skeleton. There are boots that you can see very clearly little scraps of red fabric that are pictured, very clear pictures of the skull in the dirt. And then there are a group of photos that were taken in the local funeral home where the remains were taken to, where they're kind of spread out at really wonky, weird angles. But you can see the teeth very clearly. You can see there's one hank of hair left on the skull that you can see. But even in the mortuary, they didn't say take pictures of the clothing spread out. They didn't get good photographs of the boots that were on her feet. So you can see them kind of fuzzy at the end of the table, but they didn't take direct photos of those. So while there are a number of photos, and fortunately, the photos that they did take, we were able to get forensic art made off of them. There there could have been more. It would have been great if they had taken a lot more pictures than they did the clothing, and I believe there was a wire found near the grave as well. Were those cremated with the body? We don't know. The only word that we have heard in regards to the evidence is destroyed. We don't know what that means. We know she was cremated because her remains were held at a local funeral home here for 12 years. And then the district attorney in 1990 declared case closed, can't figure out who she is, don't know who did this, don't have any leads. So we're going to close the case and destroy the remains. And I was able to locate a note at the funeral home, a handwritten note saying we sent her to the next state over. They sent her to Walla Walla County over in Washington to have her cremated because that's where they did business at the time. That's the only reason we know she was cremated. As far as the evidence, it was held in a completely different area. And while we do have somebody searching the lab where the evidence was held, he can find no documentation of exactly what happened. Was there any evidence that this cord that they found at the scene was connected to Finley Creek Jane Doe? Or was that just kind of speculation? Was it in the grave? Was it outside of the grave? It was in the grave. And we've heard little rumors, and it might have actually been written in a newspaper article at the time, I would have to remind myself, that it was in the neck area. It was tied in a knot. So at that time, they kind of speculated, well, maybe she was strangled with this. So I don't think they were able to actually definitively prove that that's what happened. And again, when you look at the photos of the remains spread out on the table, the wire's not there either. 
So if it was on the body, they didn't leave it there. And they also didn't take a picture of it separately, but it was in the grave. Based on the fragments of fabric, it's been speculated that she was wearing red pants and a white halter top. Can you tell me more about the clothes, if anything's known? Definitely red pants. And they were able to describe them as a size 15, 16 juniors. And they could see that there was evidence of length alteration. So what that's kind of told us is that is a petite woman who potentially was pretty pregnant, right? So that's a possibility there. It could also just mean hand-me-down clothes and she altered them herself for whatever reason. They've talked about a white bra or halter style top. And I have talked to the other team members about the fact that if it was a maternity bra, maybe a bunch of men might not have recognized it as such, right? And that's who was looking at it because they also found other scraps of fabric that were white that weren't part of the bra. They found some additional fabric that were white with red hearts. They described it as red hearts in the documentation. Don't know what that might have been. We've had suggestions that those could have maybe been undergarments, panties, something like that, or it could have been another overshirt, or it's really not clear what these scraps of fabrics were other than the bra or halter top. And then there were also zippers found in the grave, which could have come from the pants. It could have come from a shirt. Somebody did send me a screenshot of a shirt that was vintage that zipped up the back. I have wondered if it was some kind of jacket or something like that. And then there were these hideously ugly boots that were in there (laughs) that we've always thought, hmm, these kind of stick out in compared to the clothing that was found in the grave. But They were very, very worn out boots. And you could tell on, I believe it's the left foot, that the wear pattern is really strange. It's really worn down on the inside of the instep as compared to the outside. And so those are very well-worn boots. And we speculate they were worn by somebody who had trouble walking. For a body that has been so decomposed and clothing so just destroyed. It's amazing how much information that's been gleaned that we're able to speculate on. Did you say multiple zippers or just one? I believe it was zippers. They didn't say how many, they didn't like put a number, but it just said zippers. And it's interesting because, and this is kind of a scoop for y'all, we heard back from the doctor, the anthropologist over at Idaho State University who's examining some cremains for us, that there was a zipper head that she found in the cremains as well. So we're like, huh, that, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> but yeah, zippers. Don't know how many, just zippers. Were they able to get a shoe size from the boots? If they did, they didn't document it. Think about a pregnant person, especially with that reported range of six to eight months, but you say it could be earlier, it could be even later. When I was pregnant, I needed to have a band. I couldn't close adult size pants, let alone (laughs) junior (laughs) size. Yep. I wish some women were on the scene that could speculate on that because like you said, men aren't going to have any idea what maternity clothing entails. And if they did, 
they would have been able to better speculate on how far along she was, probably. I think so, too. The only woman who is documented to have been involved in this was a pathologist who examined the remains at the time. And I don't think she saw the clothes because they essentially separated all that out. And I'm not sure she saw any of that. And I don't know how much they actually told her at the time. They just needed to have somebody from the medical staff here locally, the hospital, take x-rays, write a report about it, and document her findings in there. What was the estimated post-mortem interval? They estimated between one and four years before she was found. Were there any indications of what kind of criminal or what kind of person this killer was that disposed of this body based on how the evidence was left behind? There were no theories or anything like that. No case notes documented about that. My personal speculation from the time I heard about this case was domestic violence. It has always struck me as a DV case just because Number one, there was a pregnancy involved. Number two, it appeared that this person had been murdered, say, in a situation where they were at home or they were not on the road. We've gotten suggestions that this was a hitchhiker. Well, if she was a hitchhiker, where's her jacket? Where's her backpack? Where's her purse? None of that stuff was there. This woman was buried with the clothes on her back and she was pregnant. So that has always said to me that this was either a partner or at minimum the father of the child who may or may not have been somebody who could take responsibility at the time maybe it was a married man maybe she was married and had a boyfriend so that's always been my theory over time of course since we're in Oregon we've had Ted Bundy thrown out there we've had Gary Ridgeway thrown out there and i know that later on as the Green River killings, they of course didn't know who Ridgeway was until the 2000s, but as the Green River killings started being talked about in the media, the district attorney revealed to us that there was some kind of informal water cooler talk about this having been a Green River victim. But I mean, ultimately, he's not really documented as having come over this far. And as far as we can tell, I mean, we don't know who she is. She didn't really fit the type of victim that he went after. So we haven't been able to come up with anything that they speculated at the time. They just, they found this body and didn't really know anything about it. She had all of her teeth and they appeared to be in very good shape. Now, we feel that the teeth, that were documented in the report may have been from a different unidentified body that the medical examiner had in the lab at the same time. There were two Jane Doe's that were found within a month of each other, the one here and then another one in Multnomah County, which if you're familiar with Oregon at all, Portland is a metropolitan city. If you hear Oregon, you usually hear about Portland. It's the big city. That's where the Jane Doe from here was sent, and that's where the Jane Doe from Multnomah County was sent. And just looking at the teeth, they're full of dirt, but 
they're all there and including wisdom teeth, but they're documented in her file as being different. They're documented as having a cap on her tooth and all this dental work done. And we're just not seeing that. So it appears to us that her teeth are actually in fairly good shape. And now a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks for listening to our sponsors. Now back to the show. With these two unidentified decedents in a similar area where there's very few homicides, it seems like there's been some speculation that maybe the two were mixed up. Suzanne and her cousin Jennifer are the ones who developed that theory kind of early on because they were examining documentation between the Finley Creek case and Suzanne's mom's case, Patty Otto's case. And just the timeline of when police reports were put out, APBs were put out, and these bodies were found, it's very likely that information from the two different cases got mixed up and put in the different files on the two unidentified women. Do you know if the woman and the fetus were cremated together or separately? Not for sure. We, again, can assume that, I suppose, but they didn't say any of that. They didn't write any of that down anywhere. And if they did, it's not in this teeny tiny file that we have. I find it amazing that when you came across this case, there was no moniker, there was no facial reconstruction. You've sort of brought her to life. Can you tell me about the process of getting that facial reconstruction done to create the face that we now know to be Finley Creek Jane Doe? We took, and when I say we, I'm referring to a number of people who, once I started the Facebook page, reached out and said, I want to help. What can I do? And so one of the first people who reached out to me, his name is Jason Futch. He's actually the author of the Web Sleuths and Crime Watchers posts that we found. And we chatted a little bit. And as more people jumped in, we decided to start a kind of a letter writing campaign to every state and county agency that we could think of to get the records. Because when we were just submitting records requests with a case number on them that had been posted online, we were getting nowhere. They were like, we don't, we don't have anything like that. We don't know what you're talking about. So we wrote this very, very detailed public records request, sent it everywhere in multiple copies. And finally, the Oregon State Police sent us the file, which, like I said, was not very big. However, in a very awesome twist of luck, they actually sent the photographs to. So as we were looking at these photographs, Jason said, I know somebody who might be able to do something with these. And so we sent the pictures of the skull to Anthony Redgrave. He and his partner, Lee Bingham Redgrave, run Redgrave Research Forensic Services. And Anthony was able to take these really bad photos of this skull and create the digital forensic art that we have now. And I'll tell you what, he sent that out a couple of days before my birthday a few years ago. And it was on my birthday that the Oregon State authorities said, yes, this will be her official photo. Disperse it at will. And so. We're like, say no more. We're on it. <laughs> so 
we uh, put that out two years ago. That was two years ago now and just sent it everywhere we could possibly send it. And we've had, now it's everywhere. And that is how Suzanne got drawn into the case because, and she probably told you this story, she was scrolling through and saw this face that looked like her. She likes to say it looked like her on crack and because <laughs> the eyes were kind of big and a little more sunken in than hers. But she said, that's me. Why am I being listed as an unidentified person? And it worked. And I, I love telling that story because early on when we were talking to Anthony about this, he said the purpose of forensic art is to create features that people recognize across generations. You might not recognize a hair color, you might not recognize a style, but you're going to recognize a feature, cheekbones, somebody's smile, their brows, something. And that's exactly what happened. Suzanne recognized herself. So that forensic art did exactly what it was designed to do. And it's just thrilling to see that happen. When you first saw her face, that human quality, what was your first reaction? I bawled. I literally started crying. I'm like, she's beautiful. For one, she has a face. I had done an interview with our local paper with a reporter there about a month or two prior. And he said, of course, you know, tell me any updates. And so as soon as I got that, I texted that to him and I said, she has a face. And when he called me about it later, I was still just like <laughs> sniffling about it because it was just amazing. It's amazing. And every time I look at her face now, it just, it does, it makes me really emotional. I had first come across the Finley Creek Jane Doe because I follow the DNA Doe project on Facebook and she had popped up and there was just something so human about it. And obviously all of these artistic renderings are great. It's phenomenal, but there was just something about her face that seemed more human, less cartoonish. We interviewed Suzanne and when her face popped up, I was just like, oh my God, that's her. Like, it was just crazy to me, like, especially in the mouth and the cheeks. It's unbelievable. I imagine you had a similar kind of reaction when you met Suzanne. I absolutely did. And one of the first things she sent me was a trifold picture of Finley Creek Jane Doe in the middle, her mom on the left and her on the right. And I was just like, wow, I was speechless for quite a long time. And that's unusual for me. And it was amazing. And then, yeah, meeting her in real life, I've, we've actually met each other last summer. And I was like, I might be being a little weird, but I just kept looking at her face and just going, if she's not related to this person, I'm going to be shocked because the family resemblance is there. It's amazing. The connection's been officially ruled out by the powers that be, so to speak, the investigating police over in Idaho. When they inquired about it, they got this one sentence handwritten note saying the dental records don't match. Suzanne pointed out that x-rays weren't taken of Finley Creek Jane Doe and that they were describing teeth that weren't like Finley Creek Jane Doe's or her mom's. But when you actually look at the photos, they look pretty much identical. And she had sent me a side-by-side -side of the teeth. And that, to me, was the most sensational thing that I've seen with this case. 
the teeth and the facial overlays. There have been several people who have done overlays of the skull from different angles and Patty's face from different angles. And it's just amazing. And the more we dig into this, we're like, first of all, that rule out was not written in Finley Creek Jane Doe's copy of the file. It's nowhere. And when Suzanne first reached out to me, she said, I'm the daughter of Patricia Otto. I see that she's been ruled out as being Finley Creek Jane Doe. Was it because of the pregnancy? And I was in the middle of my workday, but I said, I know that's not it. So let me look through the file and get back to you about that. And as I flipped through my file, Patty Otto's name is nowhere in it. She's not mentioned anywhere. She's not ruled out. She's not mentioned as a possibility. She's nowhere. So then I said, well, where did I get that information from then? Well, it's on NamUs. You take NamUs as kind of the authority. Love NamUs, but the more we started talking about it, how is this possible? And so as she's digging through the giant file, she literally finds it's a little memo. It's not a report. It's a note. Like, oh, while you were out, oh, by the way, these don't match. How do they not match? There's got to be more information than this. So right away, we're like, hmm, no, that's that's not good enough. Let's let's dig into this a little more. All parties involved deserved so much better than just a brush off one sentence. The fact that it wasn't even documented on the other end in Finley Creek's file, that says a lot too. It's just another reflection of a shoddy investigation when it really comes down to it. Poor documentation is a huge red flag. That's just foundational. Do you know anything about potential cause of death for Finley Creek Jane Doe? We know that the manner of death is homicide based on her burial, that's not something that someone does to themselves. That's not something that happens by accident. But with her level of decomposition, she was skeletal. Do we know anything or have an idea of how she died specifically? I think the only thing we can really say conclusively based on the documentation is that's there is they didn't document any defects in the bones. Say So if she had been shot, or if she'd been stabbed and there were knife marks on the ribs, anything like that. Nothing like that is documented. So it's more based on the information that's not there than the information that's actually there. So if somebody's not shot or stabbed, then causes of death that aren't going to leave any marks necessarily on the bones might include strangulation, suffocation, things along those lines. I suppose you could speculate somebody was poisoned, perhaps. I don't see any kind of toxicology that was done on these bones that would say yay or nay, but it would have to be something that wasn't as disruptive as, say, a stabbing or a shooting or something like that. But short answer is, no, they haven't mentioned anything definitive about how they feel this woman died. I was also wondering, and I would imagine that these records would be destroyed because they were back in the 1970s, but was anyone ever able to look into Patricia's medical records at or near the time of her disappearance to determine or rule out a pregnancy? 
I'm not sure if they did it at the time, but I know Suzanne in the last year or so has been able to dig up different things such as a record of a check that her mom wrote to her doctor shortly before going missing. And, you know, she's the one who's been able to get her hands on the one existing set of dental records and things like that. So I'm not sure if they dug those things up at the time and necessarily made anything out of them, but the people that have been going over the records in the meantime have kind of put together this trail of circumstantial evidence that could be, could indicate that there was a particular reason she was seeing a doctor. Because it was the doctor that delivered both Suzanne and her sister. That's kind of important to throw in there, yeah. Wow. I imagine that doctor is no longer with us. I don't think so. Suzanne could probably tell you that. So many people from this case are gone now. So many, because it's been so long. And even in the last couple of years since we've started investigating it, the trooper who initially took the report here passed away just a couple of years ago. And he was in his 90s. And I did make an attempt to try to maybe chat with him through Dale Mammon. But Dale's like, mm, his memory's not great, but I will chat with him about it. And he did. And the one thing that the man's name is Doc Baker could remember was the patterned fabric that was found. He remembered it because it was an event that wasn't common, but um, really the only thing he remembered about it was finding pattern fabric in the grave. So I realized that was a bit of a meandering story, but yeah, just people, there's so many people who are no longer here anymore. And Suzanne just recently lost a relative that she was going to talk to about it as well, but she passed before she really had a chance to talk to her about it. So We know that she was likely in between the ages of 14 and 25 and in between 5'1 and 5'4. Is that correct? Yeah, 5'3 or 5'4. I've seen it different in different places. Is there anything else that we should know about what she likely looked like when she was alive? Based on the hair that was left, they were able to describe her hair as either anywhere ranging from blonde to sandy brown to ash brown. There wasn't that much hair left. And of course, it was covered in dirt, but it wasn't, say, jet black, right? So lighter colored hair and she did have a good set of teeth. We've talked about that. She didn't appear to have any major fractures or anything like that that had healed to her bones, not that were noted anyway. And just that she was a petite woman. And they estimated that she probably weighed in the low 100s when she was alive. I think the highest estimate was like 120, 125 pounds, something like that. Can't get over the pregnant lady wearing junior size pants. I know. I know. Has Suzanne, though, talked to you about how she looked during her pregnancies or sent you any pictures? She hasn't directly, but she did post something on TikTok, which is actually how I met her. Her belly was so small. It seemed that Ralph Otto had all of the power in that dynamic. She was completely financially dependent off of him. She'd met him when she was just a teenager. If 
I were in that position, I would really be concerned that if he found out about a pregnancy that I would never be able to get out of there because he would have the he would have the wherewithal, he'd have the resources to sue for custody and potentially even compromise her ability to see her own kid, thus forcing her to stay with him. There's no evidence that he ever really wanted the kids. Once he got them to himself, he gave them away to family members. It just seemed to be a way that he controlled her. So I don't think that she necessarily would have told anyone if she was trying to get away from him, which she almost certainly was. Yeah, because she was going to college. She was taking classes so that she could gain a career. She had actually moved out of the family home at one point and was supporting herself. So yeah, she was making those moves. And you absolutely bring up a great point about Ralph. And coming from a social services background, we study and talk a lot about the idea of coercive control. In the 70s, that was not a thing. That was not a term. You got married. Your husband was the man. They run the household. You do what he says. And just knowing Ralph's background, he had a history of targeting young girls. He liked them younger because he knew he could groom them and control them. That included his wife. That included people he was having affairs with. He wanted that element of control. And by the time she's got two kids with him and has been married to him for six or seven years, she knows this. And she knows what she's got to do to get away from this man. And so she was fully attempting to do that. And one of those things is, I'm not going to tell him I'm pregnant because I'm going to be stuck. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Patricia Lee Otto, or if you have information about Finley Creek Jane Doe, please refer to the show notes with emails and phone numbers of the proper contacts for those cases. You can keep up with the True Crime Twins on social media, on Instagram at True Crime Twins Podcast, and on TikTok and Twitter at True Crime Twins. Please take a few minutes to give us a five-star rating and nice review on your preferred podcast platform. True Crime Twins is a weekly production. Look out for new episodes every Monday.